If you'll say standing with me real quick. Um, if you're new to the church, if you're new to Jesus and you're just joining us, my name is Pierce, I'm one of the pastors. That's some of our best songs right there. Um, and if you grew up in the church like I did, uh, that's how I learned about Jesus or some of those songs that, that stuck with me more than sermons did, uh, where the hymns and the melodies, and I used to sit on the organ uh, where my grandma played for our church, and I would sit by her and hear the choir sing and hear the church sing. And, uh, and I don't know if I'd be standing here today if it wasn't for some incredible men and women who sang those songs over me. And as we sang, they, they now stand face to face with his glory. And uh, this week, uh, one of them was my granddad. And this week was, uh, he passed away four years ago, five years ago this week. Me and my mom were talking about it. And, uh, and we were talking about the, the, the hymns that he used to sing in the truck as he drove me around town and, and the Tootsie Pops that were always in the center console. And, uh, and we just started talking. He's just getting started around the throne room and uh, just beginning his praise. And we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses here tonight. And, uh, and so we're so thankful that you are with us. Uh, let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you that you meet us here in this moment as you met Mary in the garden while the dew was still on the roses. That same resurrection power on that Easter morning is the same resurrection power that is with us today. And so God, we come and we open our hearts and we open our minds and we open our souls and we carry all the stuff, the joys and the highs and the lows and the valleys in here with us tonight. We lay them before a cross and an empty tomb and say, it's yours and speak to us, be with us, comfort us, lead us, call us to repentance through your kindness, and show us your faces that you showed Moses and as you showed Mary. Let us pray as you taught your disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. We have been living into this series known as The Comeback as we have studied the life of David. And so tonight we wrap it up uh, as the sixth week of it. And here's the question that I want us to ponder and begin to think about as we enter our time together, as we open the word of God. What does living the life of the comeback look like? What does living into the life of the comeback look like? And as we have studied David, as we've looked at David, we've done a brief history of his life. Five weeks doesn't do it full justice, but five weeks give us, gives us a great picture. Five weeks of realizing that David was found by God in the middle of the field when nobody else saw him. 
We learned from Pastor Angela in week two that, that in the story of David and Goliath, we should not identify with David. We should identify with the Israelites cowering in the corner, afraid of Goliath. But Christ, or David, points us to who Christ would be for us. We learned how David was, was a man of, of great honor and renown and an anointing of God, and he held steadfast to the truths of God in moments where he could have taken things into his own hands with the one that was the ruler over him, he gave honor. But as he held that in his hand, he also held in his hand moments of his life that were so broken where lust and control reigned over him and led to adultery and murder. It's a complicated life David lived. But David was a man after God's own heart through it all. Through it all, he was a man after God's own heart. And so here's the reality of the comeback series. Here's the reality of what we've been looking at over the last five weeks. The, the comeback has never been about you being a better moralistic version of yourself and of myself. The comeback is about entering into the presence of God and, and asking and begging and, and pleading for the God of all to be with us. And then in that moment, realizing that he has always been there. The apex of the comeback is not even our acknowledgement of our own sin. The apex of the comeback is acknowledging that the God of all has been with us all along. The comeback is actually a response to his goodness and his glory. The comeback is Isaiah being in the throne room of heaven and looking around and saying, woe is me, I am a sinful man. Look at God's holiness and perfection and, 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 his, and his wonder and his majesty. And then, then his lips being touched by a coal around the throne and being cleansed and him saying, send me. The comeback is Peter, uh, the first meeting of Jesus where he sees Jesus perform a miracle and hears him teach and he puts down his life and he lays down. And he goes, Jesus, you are a holy man, get away from me for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, no, but follow me, Peter. And Peter gets up and follows. Those are the stories of the comeback. The comeback is a response to the realization of the love of God, the nearness of God, a surrender to God, and ultimately a fully obeying life to God. And in David's life, he found favor. In the ups and the downs, he found favor. And in that, in the middle of his story in 2 Samuel 7, we find this promise from God. It changes everything. It says this, he says, he is the one who will build a house for my name. This is God speaking to David. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son the promise that David receives from God is that the, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Redeemer will come through David's line, will come through David's family. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of this in his book. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. And the gospel writings of, of, of Matthew, when Matthew begins his gospel story, his account of the person and the Christ of Jesus, when he begins it to a Jewish audience that knew a Messiah was coming, he starts it with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So God sent Jesus 
through the line of David as one of the messianic promises that we could be looking for. And he fulfills it because he is a covenantal God. He's a God of promises and he is true to his promises. So David's whole life points us to look to Jesus. So tonight, I want us to look to Jesus. Now, there are four books written about him. And in John's gospel, it says, uh, if, if, if we wrote everything down, the books, all the books in the world could not contain the writings of Jesus. So we don't have time to look at all of Jesus' life tonight. But let's look at the end of it. Let's start in Luke verses 23. Just hear these words. They're not going to be on the screen. They're not going to be forced, but I want you to hear them. And I invite you to do this. If you are a person who has been in church, if you have grown up in church, you know the story that we're about to read. Sit with it. Pause with it. Don't go too fast in it. So often we can know the end of the story. And so we read some of the uh, coming up to the story very quickly and we miss some of that stuff that God has for us. So hear these words. As the soldiers led him away, they see Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way out of the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, meaning Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, you will be with me today in paradise. It was about noon and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion seeing what had happened, praised God, saying, surely this was a righteous man. Look at what Luke or Mark, sorry, Matthew adds to the story. He says, when Jesus, crowded, when Jesus with a loud voice breathed his last, and the centurion stood there, I love this line, Jesus, he saw in front of Jesus how he died and said, surely this was the son of God. Some of the women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and James, and Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and carried, cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It's a lot of reading. Thank you for sticking with me. He dies. He's dead. So often we know what's about to come, and so we keep reading and we rejoice. But can we sit with the disciples for a moment in the moment that he dies? everything they had thought, everything that they had thought was going to happen, every, the, the revolution that was coming, Jesus coming to save everybody, all this in this moment, 
was, was gone. And as darkness filled the sky, it also filled their hearts and soul that night, that afternoon. And they stood there and they waited. There's a name that, that is given to David that says, hey, the Messiah will come through your line. And that word Messiah is spoken three different times in this passages that I just read you. The first time it's, it's mentioned is from the religious rulers. They look at Jesus on the cross and sneer at him and mock him and say, if you are the son of God, if you are the Messiah, you could save others. Save yourself. Save yourself. They knew a Messiah was coming, but their own power and their own control, their own rule got in the way of seeing that Jesus was that Messiah. The criminal that we don't talk a lot about, we talk about the criminal on the one that says like, Jesus, remember me in paradise. We talk about him a lot, but the other criminal says to Jesus, hey, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you God's chosen one? Like save, save yourself and us, save yourself and us. I wonder if that criminal was on the streets of Jerusalem with Jesus as he performed miracles. I wonder if that criminal had walked along the streets as Jesus was teaching and stopped long enough to ponder what he had done, or if he had just heard about who Jesus was. Regardless, this is not a form of worship for this criminal saying, save yourself and save us. This is a last ditch effort to be selfish. He's calling on Jesus to be the Messiah, not because he wants to worship him, because he wants to get out of the situation that he's in. That's where the criminal lies. The third character enters the story um, right at the end uh, in this reading, right at the end of Jesus' death. I want to read what it says. It's the centurion. It says, and when the centurion, get this, who stood there in front of Jesus, who stood there in front of Jesus. He is the closest person to Christ on the cross at the moment of his death. He is the one that would have, would have killed many, many people through his job in this, in this killing mechanism known as the cross. He would have seen the, any way that someone would have died, the way they would have handled themselves on the cross. He would have seen it all. And when he saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this was the son of God? Surely this was the son of God? Romans didn't believe in a God. Romans by nature were atheists. So now we have an atheist centurion Roman soldier who is, doesn't believe in a God and, and has seen many people die and stands at the foot of the cross where Jesus's blood is dripping down right after he breathed his last and says out loud or says to himself, he puts it on record, this is the son of God. The religious leaders and the criminal are looking at Jesus through the lens of their own benefits. And the Roman centurion looks at Jesus through the eyes of wonder. And I'm, I'm guessing my imagination is of disbelief of what they had just done. Disbelief of what they had just done. So we're gonna come back to these three people in a moment. At the end of our reading, it said that Jesus had, uh, the, the earth had shook. 
And the earth shakes three days later. And we find that in Matthew 28. So this is the part that we want to hype and holler and say amen. And, and we, we, we turn, this changes everything in this moment. It says, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. There was one on Friday. Now there's one on Sunday. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearances was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples. He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him now. I have told you these things. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy to and ran to tell his disciples. I love this. And suddenly, Jesus has a tendency of doing this. And suddenly Jesus met them. And greetings, he said. And they came to him and they clasped his feet, which meant they fell down at his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee for they will see me there. The comeback no one saw coming was the comeback everyone needs. The comeback no one saw coming was the one that everyone needed. Nobody at the cross, it wasn't John, it wasn't the disciples, it wasn't the women. None of those that were standing at the cross in the moments that Christ breathes his last is elbowing their neighbor going, just wait, this is all a comeback. This is all a thing, like just wait till Sunday. No, in that moment, they all went into hiding and they made plans to get out of the city and they were fearful for their own life. But now we have, ex we have seen that now the Christ has risen. Christ has overcame death, hell, and a grave sin. And the same victory that was offered to Jesus in that moment is now offered to you. The same way that when David killed Goliath, it gave a victory to all the Israelites. The fact that Christ overcame death, hell, and a grave, now that victory is offered to all of us. All of us. And so when we claim that, when we lay our lives down, when we die to self and we pick up the cross of Christ and his victory, we can proclaim what Paul proclaims in Colossians 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. Get this, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We are hidden in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. For those of us that have said yes to Jesus and have given, us his, given him our life in response to his goodness and his grace and his sacrifice and his redemption, we are hidden in Christ. So when the Father looks upon us living out the life that we have been called to live, he sees us through the lens of who Jesus is. And then the Holy Spirit lives within us and is his sanctifying work within us. And the Trinity is at work in all of it. So my question for us tonight is this. How are you looking at Jesus? How am I looking at Jesus are there parts of my life that I'm looking at Jesus the way the, the religious leaders of the day were? 
Am I looking at Jesus like, hey, I see you. I've heard you tell stories. I've heard your miracle stuff. I've heard all that. But, but, but I like my control in this area of my life. I like the authority that I carry in this area. I like the power that I carry in this part of my life. And so I'm not really gonna, I'm not, I can't give you that. Is that the stumbling block for us? Are we like the criminal on the cross? And are, are the, is it our whole life or part of our life where we come to Christ and we say, hey, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the Savior? And the only reason we're really saying that is because we're in a bad situation and we need him to save us. That was me all through school at the moment of any test. Like, Jesus, I need you in this moment to bring back the little bit of studying that I did to save me, to pass the class, etc. But it goes way deeper than that. It goes way deeper than that. Are we the centurion that is looking upon Jesus and the work of the, at the finished work of the cross and saying, surely he is the son of God? Are we like the women who in the moments of despair and hurting, in the moment of death, are still looking for their Savior? In the moments that we carry of death and of hurting, are we still looking for our Savior, believing in Him? If we're honest, and if I'm honest, I'm guessing there's a little bit of religious ruler in me. There's a little bit of the criminal in me. There's a little bit hopefully more of the centurion in me. And I'm working and praying that I live a life like the women on the day of Easter, that I will be looking for Christ in all things, even in the moments of death. How are you gazing upon the goodness of God? I do want to give you a word of warning. As, as we begin to live into the life of the comeback, there, there is something that happens, I believe, that the enemy speaks against us. I believe the enemy speaks specifically two different words to us in moments of, of coming back to Christ, returning to him because he has loved us first. We begin to be drawn back to him. And the first is this, it's a voice of shame that tells you, Listen, I know you are making lifestyle changes and you're giving your life, but this is only going to last for a moment. You're going to be right back at rock bottom before you know it. You know you've done this before. You've been through this whole cycle where you give it to Jesus and then you end up back in the same hole and the same despair and the same anxiety and the same dot, 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 dot. And to that voice, when it comes, we declare Colossians 3 again back to the enemy. We declare for I have died and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. When God, who is my life, appears, then I also will appear with him in glory. So to shame, we speak Colossians. The other voice is pride. In the comeback story, we can easily become prideful and go, look what I've done. Look what I've made. Look, look how I've turned my life around. Look how everything is now working out. Look how strong I am. Look how awesome I am. Like I did this incredible thing. And to that voice, I say that we speak Paul's words in Galatia. To the church in Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith. And the son of God who loved me and gave me, gave himself for me. John says it another way. He says, um, I must decrease. John the Baptist says, I must decrease so that he can increase. So to pride, 
we speak, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about who Christ is and the finished work of the cross. So what does the living into the comeback look like? It's, it's a process. And I want to give you three things tonight uh, to, to hold on and to take away. And the first is this. Living a life of the comeback means practicing the presence of God. Practicing the presence of God. You're doing that tonight. You're doing that today, gathering together to lift up the name of Jesus. That is part of it. Time and time again, we see David getting away and being with God. We see Jesus getting away and being with God. And there's this incredible thing I heard the other day, and I've just been holding on to it. The only thing better than God with us is God in us. Let me say that again. The only thing better than God with us, Christ with us, is God and the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus knew that he had to leave so that the Holy Spirit could come and live within us. And so we have to begin to live a life of practicing the presence of God. The second one is this. We have to begin praying the promises of God. This is what David does in his response to Jesus or God telling him, hey, the Messiah is going to come through your line. The Messiah is going to come through your line. Check out what, what David says here in response to that in 2 Samuel 7 at the end of the chapter in verse 28. He says, Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. The scriptures are full of the promises of God for his beloved sons and daughters. We pray these promises because our God is a covenantal God. And so even in the moments we don't feel it or see it or know it, we can take trust and hold fast to his promises are true. And the last is this, imparting the imparted from God. Imparting the imparted from God. As we practice the presence and as we pray the promises, and as the Holy Spirit does the sanctifying work of making us more like Christ, we begin to begin to live a life that looks more like Christ. So often in the South, if we're honest, the gospel that we heard growing up, or at least the gospel we believe growing up, is that when you begin to act like it, Jesus will love you. And it's very much the opposite. When because Jesus loves you and as you give your life to him, your life will begin to look different. Your life will become more sanctified and Christ-like. But that's not because of your great work is because of his great work. So as we live this life, the imparted thing that God gives us, we then give out to others. Peter and John do this when, when, the, when the man says, hey, do you have anything? And Peter says, look at us. For silver and gold we do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ stand. What Christ imparts in us, we impart to others. So here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned and, and I'm continuing to learn in the life of the comeback is that I've messed it up and I've screwed it up on different levels time and time again. And I'm probably going to do that again and again. But the finished work of the cross, 
And the fact that we have a God who overcame death, hell, and a grave, and the tomb is no longer occupied by him, and I have given my life to him, I now stand in in his salvation. I stand, I am hidden in a risen Savior who overcame all those things. And because I have now hidden in him, I take on his identity, I take on his righteousness, I take on his holiness, and I begin to step out into what God has for me. That's the comeback. The comeback is a posture of gazing upon the goodness of God and saying, have your way with me. Have your way with me.